0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawlik.
1: Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast powered by First National. I'm Aaron Cameron. With me as always is Adam Pawlik. What you're about to listen to is an interview that Adam and I recently conducted as part of our partnership with the Real
0: Estate Forum and their Ref Club Initiative. I hope you enjoy it. All right, welcome to the Ref Club, Ask the Expert. The expert today in question is Ray Wong of Altus Group. I am Adam Pawatik, and also on the screen you'll see Aaron Cameron. We are both from First National. We are definitely not the experts, but that's why Ray is here today to fill in the gaps that Aaron and speak, I have in speak our Speak for yourself, Adam. Speak for <laughs> yeah. yourself. So I'm pretty excited to talk to Ray today. We last had him on the podcast back in June. At that time, there was a bit of a dearth of information. Dearth means none, right? (laughs) Just to clarify. But there was an absence of information at the time. The reporting hasn't quite caught up yet. And there wasn't transactions taking place. But now we should have a full data set to examine some of the larger transactions that happened through 2020 and give us a feel for where the market is in these turbulent times or the other words that have been used to describe the COVID period. Ray, welcome.
2: Thank you. Adam, Aaron, these calls are actually intimidating because I really think that both you guys are smarter than I am. So let's try to get into some of the trends.
1: Our goal, Adam, today is to prove him wrong. (laughs) Okay.
0: Right? (laughs) Perfect.
2: It's interesting with 2020 because there's a lot of discussions or especially early part of 2020 about the dire consequences regards to the pandemic and especially that three to four months of Lockdown with basically no transactions that were happening in, in the markets and uh, the investors sort of took a pause. But when you look at the year-end results, based on four months down and 2019 as the second highest investment volume that we've ever recorded in Canada, it's not that bad. We're only down by about 21% year over year. So we achieved what $54.4 billion in volume in 2019 and then down to 42.9 billion in 2020. So it's investors gaining confidence, tweaking to a certain extent some of their investment strategy, but it was full steam ahead for investors. And the only challenge this year was the lack of product and as well as with investors and owners trying to figure out how to position their assets and as well as with some of the purchasers Having more of the expectations of discounts and sort of a gap between the bid and ask. But what's really interesting as well is we look at the overall activity. I'm sorry, I'm glancing over the popular markets. And again, it's still the same based on the market size that Vancouver and Toronto were dominant. The GTA dropped from 22.7 billion down to 17.2. Vancouver dropped from 9.2 to 7.7. And the third place was basically Montreal, 8.9 and 7.3. So Montreal actually didn't really drop that much. And part of that was sort of that overlapping activity that came through 2019 into 2020. When you look at the overall volume by type, again, overall national investment volume is down by 21%. And the two most popular asset classes being industrial and multifamily. Industrial volume is only down by 5% compared to 2019. And the actual number of transactions actually increased from 2019 at 1,510 and 2020 slightly higher at 1,517. So it shows you the amount of demand in that area. And same thing on the multifamily side. In 2019, we saw bigger deals at 1,179 transactions. And in 2020, it actually increased to 1,409. And we'll get into the profile of the buyers in the marketplace, but it's reflective of the buyers because every year the private investors are the most dominant in the way of actually both buyers and sellers. But this gives you an idea of some of the opportunity in the marketplace. What we've been really seeing is, is anything that has development potential, anything that has expansion potential was sought after by investors. And that goes for not just your industrial and multifamily, but that also goes to retail. And retail got a lot of sort of negative comments based on the number of closures, especially on retail side, and the rent deferments. But the activity is actually, it's only off by about 15 to 20%. But again, it's not off. Is based on all the rhetoric and all the discussion, you would think the number would be a lot bigger of drop. The biggest drop that we saw in 2019 to 2020 was basically in the office sector. And it's down by 56%. And again, a lot of discussions in the past year about how successful it was to move people to work from home. And the question is whether or not you actually need the office place. What we found is that Altus produces the survey called Key Assumptions. And we surveyed our clients just after April with respect to the expectation for how much space that they were going to either not need or downsize. So you heard anywhere from 50% to not needing office space at all. And then November, when we ran the same survey, it was more so that 82% or a good percentage of the respondents only felt that they needed to downsize their office space by 20% or less. So again, this goes back to the whole aspect that productivity is slipping a little bit compared to April of last year, that the need to get back in the office for office collaboration and interaction with your colleagues. So I'm a big sort of supporter of going back to the office and having those type of synergies and discussions. But I think it's really interesting with the office, not just transactions are down, but the overall lease activity across Canada is down by anywhere from 40 to 60%. But it's also because the availability of product that's also driving that downwards.
1: So let me kind of do a quick summary. Then I think there are some people that are joining live here as we go. So you're saying transactions year over year between 2019 and 2020 is down 21%. Correct me yep. if I'm wrong on these numbers. Yep. You saw industrial was the least decline at only 5% down year over year. Next was multifamily. What was the multifamily number again? 16%. Retail was down in sort of that mid-20s, and then office down in 56%.
2: Yeah, it was interesting on the retail side because overall, when you take out the malls and the plazas, when you look at individual standalone retail, at I think third quarter, we were actually up in Toronto by 6% over the previous year. So this goes back to the opportunity from the private investors or anything that has redevelopment potential, with some hair on the projects, they were looking for upside returns. Either well, a lot of it's for alternative uses or different type of uses. Well, and
1: Ray, I mean, that was kind of where my brain was going, is what, what point do you reclassify that retail acquisition as a land acquisition? I mean, the retails, they're the easiest to demolish. They're, they're typically flat, maybe one story or two stories, tons of parking space. Like at what point are they really just looking at it as a land play and the retail is kind of just inconsequential?
2: Well, We've been seeing that it's not just a 2020 trend. It goes before that. With our data, what we try to track is is both what is the existing use and what is the potential use or what's the primary purpose of that purchase. So some of the challenges, if the land is already zoned, and depending on the size of the parcel of the land, requires quite a bit of perhaps changes to the secondary plans or the official plans with use, it takes a little bit longer. So it's really dependent on the horizon for the development. And again, it's based on the overall size. So it's easier if they're looking at especially mixed use. So we're seeing a lot of retail, especially with larger parcels going into mixed use to leverage retail, residential, and perhaps even office with single sites. And that's what we talked about last year in regards to your Yorkdales and your baby villages that have Applications in for either rental or condominium development. So, increasing the densities, the use, and the return of those parcels. So, again, it was a great question, Aaron. It could be anywhere from 12 months to five years, depending on the complexity of the land and what type of redevelopment they want to position the property.
0: Well, five years, developers have all the patience in the world, as far as I can tell, because the timeframes they deal with, I personally couldn't put my hats off to them for doing so. We got a chance to speak to you in June. And as I mentioned, there wasn't a ton of information available then, but there was signs of life returning. If we talked to you in the lowest of the low point, 2020 during April, when it became evident we were going to be locked down for a while and all activity had stopped, if you'd done a gut check then of what you thought the end of your numbers would look like how far off were we? You know, high or low? I don't want to give an answer for you. I assume that we ended up better than you thought we'd be. But what was your impression at the time if you were forecasting for the rest of the year?
2: We were looking at 40% because if you look at the financial crisis in 2007, 2008, when that hit, overall activity that year compared to the previous year was down 40%. Now, we also knew that this time around, because it's this pandemic, we didn't know that it was going to last this long. And again, I think all, back in March, we all thought it was going to be about two and a half, three weeks, not almost a year. We're still in some sort of lockdown. But the financial crisis, it was there. That's where you were thinking, well, it's a global financial crisis and whether or not you actually can survive. So this thing, it was based on a specific event. So we're a little bit more Optimistic compared to 2008. But at the same time, though, we also knew that there was going to be some hesitation because it wasn't just the confidence in the marketplace, but how that was starting to impact supply and demand with the market fundamentals. And industrial has taken off. In Vancouver and Toronto, where our availability rates are below anything from 25 to 2%. And it's still relatively tight. And again, e-commerce continues to grow in that area. So office availability rates have moved up, but industrial, because the e-commerce distribution has really ratcheted down more. And on the industrial side, that's where you're seeing increase in rents compared to retail and office, where you're still anticipating 5 to 10% drop in office costs, especially for your B and C buildings in, in some of the urban markets.
1: Just a reminder to those that are watching live, this is called Ask the Expert. So please feel free to put some questions into the chat And Adam and I will kind of weave them in or or filter them in at near the end. And for those that are watching live and those that may be listening to this at a later date, I mean, let's just sort of set the table for the discussion so that Ray, Adam, and I can hold on. Because part of the beautiful thing about interviewing Ray is it's just an endless amount of data points. But you can go from one asset class to the other and back and forth, because obviously there's a lot of similarities. So we're on retail. Let's finish retail. Then maybe let's do apartments. Because I think apartments is probably the most boring. And then finish off with industrial and office. And then I think, Ray, you've got some major transactions from 2020 we want to talk about too. So we'll kind of get to those. Let me just finish on retail because I think it's kind of interesting because you talk about a higher amount of transaction than we probably would have anticipated given the retail is dead narrative that existed quite a bit throughout COVID. Do you split your data up between sort of anchored and unanchored or grocery anchored and other? Because I mean, I think a lot of that retail transactions was probably more of a grocery play than necessarily specifically retail.
2: And you're obviously right. What was in demand on the retail side was anything in regards to Grocery Anchor. And the challenge with Grocery Anchor was basically the lack of product. People that owned uh, Grocery Anchor, they had absolutely no reason to sell, and they didn't really suffer with any type of major rent deferments. Perhaps some of the smaller stores, but the grocery stores that continue to pay rent in that area. But we sort of separated more of the three standing small ones. So the activity fall off in retail was some of the other sort of shopping center activity. But from a positive note on the retail side, that sector was quite strong. Anything attached to an anchor. The whole thing about retail, and we've been using an analogy of goes back to the summer, building a sandcastle on the beach. And sooner or later, that sandcastle is going to get destroyed, and you start again. Same thing with retail. Every single year, retail is dead. Brick and mortar is needed. But they reinvent itself. They're bringing in experiences that you can't have online, and it just reinvents itself Every year, they come up with something different that brings consumers back. The challenge this time around is to get people, one of the things, for the restrictions to come off and for people to feel safe again to go back into the retail. So it's going to be a challenge, but it's rebuilding that sandcastle again.
0: We've got to get through a couple of asset classes here. So maybe we'll talk about apartments. That is Aaron's mind, areas of expertise. So this is our comfort zone. and then we will move on to other asset classes.
2: That's your strongest and that's my <laughs> weakest, but go ahead.
0: <laughs> All right, we'll switch yeah. the hats for a moment. And you interviewed Aaron and me. I had an interesting moment the other day. I was looking at a data set in a chart. It was one of your competitors. I won't say their name out of respect for you, Ray. But side by side, there is you know same market, same time frame. I'm looking at rents and they're increasing nicely until 2020 and a deep divot down. And then the forecast is they'll go back up and directly adjacent to it is per unit value. Same trajectory, heading up a slight little bump, if that even, and then continuing on. So rents are down, valuations were barely touched. Can you comment on that?
2: Absolutely. The rents are caused by level of occupancy, and depending on where those apartments are, you had higher vacancy rates in the urban areas and a number of different factors from universities to the lack of immigration and work from home, and that shift a lot of people moving back home. But from an investor standpoint, multifamily continues to be a strong asset in demand, and we're still seeing cap rate deals under. or even 2% in some cases, especially if there's a redevelopment play. So from an investor standpoint, they're looking at longer term regards to those type of returns. And I agree that immigration, hopefully back by the second half of this year into 2022 and occupancy levels will return. And with multifamily, you're not seeing sort of heavy discounts and you're not seeing a lot of product hit the market. So the challenge you still have is that you have limited supply. You know this asset is going to come back, right? So that's why from the value standpoint, we see it as a short-term blimp, but it's a solid asset and it's always been a solid asset. And we're just going through a bit of an adjustment based on the pandemic. So even though that vacancy rates are up, the overall demand and pricing is still there.
0: I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention the finance aspect, and not just apartments, but it relates to all assets, is the interest cost and borrowing plummeted at the same time that some of the NOIs of all these properties started taking a hit. How much of that do you think was supportive of maintaining values throughout versus people just understanding that this should be a fast recovery on the other side?
2: Well. It's a factor, but there was already a lot of capital available for investments, especially with some of the institutions, but mainly with the private players that were able to leverage um, the lower interest rates. I think that caused a lot of what we said earlier in that retail sector, and as well as the dominant play by private investors that were involved in the marketplace and definitely has played a big role in the residential sector. With the growth in demand and growth in the prices in that area, so you would think that it would play a bigger part of it. But on the commercial side, when you look at the investors, that uh, it plays a part of it. But there was still a lot of capital that they had available and ready to deploy in the market.
1: Yeah, let me add to that, Ray, and then we'll keep moving. But you know, First National, of course, we do a ton of business with CMHC as a partner, and. Even though their market reports were just out, you could access them online, just showing what their research has provided or had discovered over the last year. And, you know, vacancies are up across the board. I don't think there's a marketplace where vacancies haven't either remained fat or gone up. Even CMECs acknowledge that they identify this as a short-term thing. And even though downtown Montreal is an example, vacancies are showing at 12% as of 2020. But they're not going to underwrite up to 12% because they appreciate, you know, if you're underwriting a 10 year deal at 12%, you're implicating a borrower at a disadvantage given they all anticipate vacancies to go back down to sort of historical averages in the long term. So I think that's positive from a financing perspective, as you noted for the residential space. So let's keep moving to industrial. I want to leave time for some of the transactions you identified. So industrial, no surprise, as you indicated at the front, 5% down, biggest, most attractive asset class. I mean, do you have any kind of insight into where it's going? I mean, do you think it's, it's going to become a massive, massive investment opportunity for the industry going through in 2021?
2: The thing about industrial, from one perspective, you have the investors, but you also have the users. And it's interesting, we ran the lease activity in industrial, and in the GTA, in 2020, we had user sales at 20 and it dropped a little bit in 2020 to 25% from 6 to 4.6 million square feet. And a lot had to do with respect to more investors getting into the marketplace. Again, it's those users' purchases that were really taking advantage of the lower interest rates and to use their assets as a future investment vehicle. So you saw that quite active, and you look at the leases, In 2019, you're at 11.9 million square feet, and 2020, you're at 9.4 million square feet. So it's interesting with the industrial sector that it's the tenants that are leasing space looking at renewals, because it's up by 22% compared to 11%, just so that they can secure space over the next three to five years. And the office side, you look at the increase in availability rates based on sublet, there, there's a lot of incentives from owners and institutions to retain uh, those tenants because they're just hedging their bet that they want to make sure that they're still getting revenue in their buildings. So from the industrial side, a lot of the renewals are driven by the tenants and a lot of the renewals and the blend extends on the office side. is driven by the incentives from the landlords. So that gives you a, a bit of a difference for those two marketplaces. Industrial, I still think it's largely driven again a lot by the warehouse distribution. But one of the things that we're looking at is that on e-commerce, when you purchase something online, that 30, 40% of the products are actually returned and in the store is slightly less, I think it's about 15 to 20%. So if you look at that level of demand for warehouse distribution, there's about 11 million square feet of demand in 2020. And companies now, especially in the U.S., they're looking at warehouses just designed around dealing with the returns. So that's an additional, if you look at 20% of that 11 million square feet activity, between two and four million square feet of probably new demand into the warehouse demand going forward in the next five to 10 years. So I think the industrial market right now, it's great and there's a lot of demand, but there's going to be more demand coming down the road if they're going to deal with these returns because the returns actually add between three to 9% of additional costs for the warehouses, depending if it's return directly via mail or the retail store. So that's something that keeps me sort of confident about the industrial sector because of the current demand plus the future demand in dealing with returns to the space. So I'm very positive about the industrial market, not just in Toronto, but in Alberta and Vancouver and all the markets going forward just because of that sustainability and e-commerce is just not going away.
1: Yeah, well, a good comment on e-commerce. Adam, do you remember who it was that we were talking to that had indicated that there are some organizations out there that have just basically said, if you don't want it, keep it anyway. Don't send it back to me because it's too expensive for me to process the return. And yeah. I think that's just because they just hadn't built out the infrastructure necessary to manage it yet.
0: Yeah, the rocket ship growth is difficult for anybody, but trying to do rocket ship growth in a global pandemic has got to be even more of a heart attack. Up next, we've got some transactions. I think we're going to move on from industrial. I mean, I think it's very clear that the party continues in industrial and will for years ahead. Ray, you put together some large transactions. We did it with some eye-poppers by the end of the year. Do you want to review some of the very large transactions across the country?
2: Well, the big thing, we pulled pull together some stats on the top 10 transactions across Canada. And they represent about $7.4 billion compared to the overall forty-two. So. It does represent a number of sort of big deals, but it's really interesting that when you look at the overall marketplace, industrial was the number one purchase. But when you look at the top transaction, and this gives you the size of the deals on the multifamily side, that they were at about $2.2 billion compared to industrial at $1.8 billion. So that means that larger sort of developments, the top deals are still dominant by the Apartment or the multi-family sector, and this goes right across the board. And those are the big buyers, and the big sellers continues to be on the sales side. Industrial was at one point eight billion, and apartment was the big seller. I guess it makes sense if uh, apartments was the big purchaser, they're also the biggest seller of the assets. But that just gives you a semblance of that overall activity. And again, what we said earlier is the private investors that are dominant regards to picking up the biggest transactions and followed by the institutional money. So again, that trend doesn't change year in and year out. And that's why you're seeing very low cap rates in both apartment and the industrial side.
0: Ray, do you want to talk about some of the individual transactions that really, really stood out over the course of the year? Well, can I throw one at you, Ray, that you had sort
1: of distributed us earlier that I think is just interesting? And maybe there's a story behind this, and maybe you can give us a bit of color. I'll focus on one number, and we can debate until the cows come home about cap rates. But you've got a number here of 2.7% on an office share purchase. Now, you'd also describe it as recognized as the largest or the best class one building in Vancouver of the landing in Gastown you want to maybe just add some color to Allied's motivations and sort of paying that amount. Now, maybe I'm wrong, maybe 2.7% is a decent cap rate for office in Vancouver, just given the availability of land. What do you think?
2: Well, again, that's a real unique asset. Any type of unique asset based on its location and based on its history, and as well as what Allied is very successful in repositioning those type of assets with the office space. And it's positioning, it's Again, that cap rate of 2.7 is a bit of an estimated based on the share sale. The share sale is different from a market transaction. It's an exchange of sales rather than an exchange of dollars. So that might be a little bit low at 2.7, but that's what we have estimated based on the information we have. But still, that building is very unique and the cap rate is very unique because cap rates in Vancouver would be a little bit higher. Again, it's a downtown urban location it'll be anywhere from probably closer to about 4 to 5% as reasonable. So there's definitely a premium that was placed on the asset and you couldn't really use this as a benchmark to show the cap rate for office for this market.
1: Yeah, and likely until you can kind of dive deep into the depths of the rent roll and tenant profile, knowing Allied and their history, they've likely identified some significant uptick in those rents. So they're looking at it at 2.7 as is, but probably a six once they've gotten in there and done their thing and stabilized, et cetera, et cetera, right?
2: Again, so, they're very good and successful doing this. So definitely know what they're doing here.
1: Just an interesting transaction. I mean, just for some more information, it was $225 million share sale on a 115 year old i would call it is class a even though it's 115 year old a very very sort of nice attractive building in gastown again one of the most trendy neighborhoods in the country right such so a whole bunch of check marks beside it so you can see it allied's kind of probably targeting that as a trophy asset before we go to some of the other transactions Ray, i just i wanted to get your color on the office market you had mentioned at the top about It being, I think, 56%, if I'm remembering correctly, down sort of in transaction dollars. And so everybody is talking about whenever going back to the office the same. I'm wondering if that 56% might be a little bit more of a knee-jerk than a true reflection of what's going to transpire in the office market going forward. I mean, what are your thoughts?
2: Aaron, I totally agree with you that that number was also based on the large transaction in 2019 with the Bentall Buildings in Vancouver. And that went to Hudson Pacific, hopefully pronouncing that right. But again, if you remove that transaction, then the number is still down, but not as significant. But I think you never try to sell any type of uncertainty. If There's uncertainty that also impacts some of the pricing. And if you look at a lot of the ownership for the office side, that you never really want to take a loss or a significant discount on some of those assets. So I think... Part of it was the pandemic and a little bit of the uncertainty with the increase in availability rates, but it was also based on the record activity in the 2019 2019- on the office side, but it is uncharacteristically down compared to the history of us tracking the office market.
1: Just to add color, like I did hear, and I don't know if this is new, it's probably a couple months old, but Spotify's a major office tenant in Ottawa announced that they're going to continue their work from home long beyond COVID. and uh, hey, Aaron, downsizing. Aaron,
2: I, I make the same mistake. Did you say Spotify or Shopify?
1: Shopify. I said Spotify, but I certainly meant Shopify. (laughs) Yeah, Thank you for clarifying. And that's a tech company. So, I mean, maybe they think about office use and company culture differently than us financial institution types. But I certainly, like you, Ray, am a proponent of let's get everybody back in the offices safely and as soon as we can. I suspect this whole office is dead. Retail was dead in the spring. Now office is dead. I feel like it's all this sort of you know, sensationalism and there's going to be probably some happy medium to it all.
2: It's interesting. There's been a lot of discussion of not coming back in the office, but Shopify still has their leases in place in Toronto with the well. So they haven't backed down with the exception of what they did in Ottawa. And if you look at Amazon, they leased about 100,000 square feet downtown and... There's a few others, and you heard about yesterday on the renewal with Scotiabank with with their building. So there's some positive aspects there, and I think we have to wait and see this year to see the, the full impact of the reduction. Is it 20%? Is it 30%? And we still anticipate the sublet availability rate to continue to move upwards, at least this year, until companies get a better feeling of what they're going to do with their space and how they're going to interact. And the biggest thing that they're suffering right now is Going back to that company culture, and you need people back in the office. You can't do it on the screen to, to actually reinforce that. So that's one of the big challenges I think company has going forward, especially with tech firms, making sure they facilitate that. Because you have that company culture, you have that retention of talent, and it all plays into one another. And that's why I'm sort of a big believer of that need to be back in the office, maybe not back to the same five days a week, at least about two or three days a week.
0: We've got about five minutes before we jump into some of the questions from the viewing audience here. But before that, I just want to review a couple more transactions here. The other one that caught my eye was the, the biggest retail transaction. Anytime that somebody's making a big, bold move in an asset class that, as you mentioned a couple of times now, has had a shaky road for the pre-COVID, one you've highlighted here is the center on Barton Hamilton, 23 properties. $150 million deal. What value do you see in this deal? How would it make sense on the buyer side for this transaction?
2: Well, the location itself, it's not that far from the QEW and it's a sizable property. So I'm sure there's room for repositioning of that asset. But it's also a reflection of, it shows you that retail is moving, that there is demand for that. And it could be that owners are also rebalancing their portfolios to a certain extent. Maybe they're overly weighted in the area. So the positive news for this transaction, one, is the size of the deal. And two, it shows you that there is still demand for these type of assets. And at 66.4 acres, what we talked about earlier, there could be sort of redevelopment intensification of use to try to increase the return on those properties. So I think there's still some opportunities out there, even though It's a retail property. It may not stay just retail going forward.
1: I see that number of 66 and a half acres. I mean, I know of that asset, but I don't know it specifically. But I can imagine there's the purchasers. I guess we can say it. The purchasers are Crest Point and AIMCO. And they're probably looking at some parking space and excess land thinking that would make a really good apartment tower. I think we're seeing that across the country. Maybe there's a quick jump and then we'll go back to one more asset class. I mean, are you seeing that across the board? Just a flight to apartment development for intensification, Ray?
2: Well, a combination of, if we look at companies like RealCan, again, they're looking at the different assets and are sort of positioning as such. So some of it could be sort of condominium and rental, but there's a lot more demand, especially I think from the institutions to build high level or luxury rentals as potential longer term returns. So I think we're going to see a combination of rental and condominiums on these retail centers across Canada.
1: And then I guess maybe before we finish, and again, just a reminder for the Ref Club members that are participating on this live webinar to get your questions in and we'll cover them after this. Let's do the last one because I think Alberta needs a little bit of love all the time. I think they're kind of solemn and downtrodden at times. So here's the one that you kind of identified, which is a business park in Calgary, which was the largest single building industrial deal of the year. It was a purchase of $88 million for 750,000 square feet at I'll do the math for everybody at 117 bucks a foot. Maybe just describe what you gleaned from that transaction, Ray.
2: The thing is with Alberta, and I'll throw Edmonton and Calgary into mix. The industrial compared to the office side has always done well with respect to the type of assets and as sort of a distribution point. And I think this has been mentioned a number of times just because of the lack of industrial space and the high cost of industrial space in Vancouver, to service that marketplace, things are shipped in and trucked to Calgary. And from Calgary, is pushed back over the mountains back into Vancouver to sort of service that marketplace. So in addition to the local demand and the regional demand with Edmonton and Calgary, they also service Western Canada. So from that perspective, their availability rates are a little bit higher compared to Vancouver, Toronto, uh, between 8 or 10%. But the type of assets are a little bit newer. They are seeing rent increases. And that's always been a strong sector. And it's just the office market that's a lot of negativity based on the 30-plus uh, availability rate in downtown Calgary. So it's, again... Industrial just does well across Canada, and same thing with Halifax. You know, their availability rate is around eleven or twelve percent, but that's representative of the older stock. But the overall health of that industrial marketplace, even though it's double digits, continues to do okay compared to the other markets.
1: One last question, Ray, before we kind of head off to the question and answer period. This is asked the experts, by the way. That one hundred seventeen bucks per square foot. I mean, I know sometimes it depends on rents, but I mean, just notionally. Where does that compare across the country? What's industrial general average per square foot for Vancouver versus Toronto, Montreal? You mentioned Halifax. Like, just kind of give some context.
2: Well, it's definitely higher than Halifax, just because really old stock of buildings. But it's a bargain compared to Toronto and Vancouver. And Montreal has a bit of a they're getting new stock, but they have a bit of an older stock as well. But it's this number one seventeen is. Very good considering the asset and the availability rates for this marketplace. So, again, it's that premium in those other marketplaces as reflective of the low availability rate.
1: Great. Well, thank you, Ray. We're going to move on to our Q&A period for the REF members that have joined us live. So, thank you very much. For the rest of you listening, a reminder to sign up for the REF club. So you can watch live Adam and I interviewing, you know, experts and doing think-ins basically every week throughout the year. And you get kind of exclusive access shortly as Ref Club members.
0: But anyway, for that, Ray, thank you very much. Hey, everybody. That's the end of our interview that we did with the Ref Club. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.